The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Open our Bibles now, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3, and I want to continue our study this evening in the third chapter, the last part of this third chapter, and this is Dr. Paul's dissertation on uh, the subject of law and faith. Uh, The theme of Galatians is not really hard to follow, is it? I mean, we've been spending all this time on on uh, in the book of Galatians and it's not hard to figure out what Paul's main theme is here his theme is justification and we've been submerged in this doctrine of justification for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks uh, Galatians is all about salvation and and the question that's asked and answered is how is it be possible how is it possible to be just with God is salvation by the hearing of faith Or is it by the works of the law? And it doesn't seem that Paul would really have to deal with this, with this question, because the people that he's writing this to are believers. And these are people that have been saved, as we'll get into just a moment. They're people that have been baptized. They're member of the Galatian churches. So why does Paul have to spend so much time on this primary doctrine that everybody should have right up front and they should know? Well, we wouldn't have to spend time on doctrine if Satan would just leave us alone. I mean, if he wasn't busy about trying to tear down what we do, we wouldn't have to worry about uh, the doctrines or, or teaching people over and over again the same things in the faith. Because Satan does everything that he can, just everything that he can, first of all, to keep people from believing the truth. And thank the Lord for this, that as adept that Satan is at deceiving people, God is greater And God is the one who opens blinded eyes so that people can understand the gospel of Christ. And we thank God for that because if he didn't do it, there's none of us that can withstand the onslaught that Satan puts against people to try to keep them from believing the truth. But once he's lost that battle, the next best thing that he does or one of the things that he starts to do is he attacks uh, people in, in the area of personal holiness. He attacks us at the level of our sanctification. And the effective witness of those who are believers is often ruined because of low morals. And so Satan fights against us there. He doesn't want us yielding to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit once we've been born again. But perhaps his greatest success is one in the area of doctrine. His greatest success, because the, the, the compromise of doctrine has been the destruction of many, many churches. And especially when Satan deals with this issue of justification, the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, when he messes people up on this, the, the effectiveness of the witness of the church is completely lost. You see, I, I've told you about this before, we've talked about it, that you can, you can be saved and not understand ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And you can be saved and you may not understand eschatology. You, you may not have it all right in your mind what the end times are going to be like. And you can be saved whether you know anything about election and predestination and those things. And you can be saved whether you can differentiate between the general call and the, and the effectual call of salvation. You may not really understand how all of that works. And then once you become a Christian, you can go to a church like Berean and you can hear all those things are, that, are, that are taught. 
And you understand, you must understand the doctrine of justification because without that you can't be saved. You might not know all the ins and outs of it. You might not know all of the terminology. But you have to know the difference between these two things, salvation by God's initiative and salvation by your initiative. And if you can't get that straight, you can't be saved. And Satan knows that. And so the main doctrine that he tries to pervert is the doctrine of justification. And this is what he did with the Galatians. He sent his, his ambassadors masquerading as angels of light, and they went to the Galatian churches and they confused them on this doctrine. The Judaizers said, you cannot be saved without being circumcised, which is the same thing as you cannot be saved by anything other, or you must have also the works of the law. Well, what that did was it afforded Paul an opportunity to do some in-depth teachings about law and grace and what the purpose of both of these are. And it might seem a little bit strange for me to say this, but God was not thrown off track and God was not out, I would call it being out of kilter because somebody came to the Galatian churches and started to confuse them about the doctrines of the faith. That, that doesn't throw God off. Instead, God takes that thing and he turns it around for our good because now we have the opportunity to read all this wonderful doctrine that we have in the book of Galatians and we learn to understand this so much better. So God has a purpose in everything that he does. So this turns out to be soul-thrilling teaching for us because it magnifies the grace of God and it helps us to realize just how helpless that we were and that if God had not done something for us, we would have been conquered and, and just really put to death by God's law itself. We're all under the wrath of God unless God should come and open our eyes to the truth. And so what we actually get to see here then is God's marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Well, we go to the scriptures, and we've read this a couple, three times already. So what I really wanted to do, let's just start at the 26th verse tonight because we're going to spend time there after I get to a few more remarks made about things we've already talked about. But in the 26th verse, Paul says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now the first point of your outline, we've we've already covered a couple of times, but the first point is the bondage of the law. And our subject is free from the law, and we can't be free from the law unless we were once in bondage to it. And so in verse 23, Paul says we were kept under the law. And the word kept there means that we're guarded, that we were garrisoned, uh, that we were locked down like in a fort or in a prison. And then Paul says before Christ came, before he came, the law held us and would not let us go. Now the way he puts it here, uh, he says before faith came. And there he's actually talking about Christ because Christ is the embodiment of our faith. Now, we're, we were under the law and bondage to the law, and that's a bad thing, but it's also a good thing. It's bad because we were unable to free ourselves from it. I mean, the righteous demands of the law were cruel to, to us in one sense, that it condemned us to hell, that it was uncompromising, it was relentless, it, 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 it continues to hold us. And eventually, if something's not done about the judgment of the law, it will deliver us to death. 
So Paul said in the first part of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, remember he's writing to save people, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. And so his question here is actually, why have you turned back from the faith? Why have you turned back when, when Christ promised and he did deliver you from the bondage of the law? And he's telling them there is no help in the law. The law can't do anything for you. The law does nothing but condemn. It's a bad thing to be held captive by the law, and it's a bad thing to try to be free from the very thing that tries to condemn you by using it to try to free yourself. And that's what people do when they turn to the law for their salvation. And what happens is they completely miss the meaning of being justified by Christ. And they think they can be justified by the law. And they misunderstand the purpose of God giving the law. It's a bad thing to be in bondage to the law. But then on the other hand, it's a good thing. When God visited Israel and he came down on Mount Sinai, that was a joyous occasion. You read it in the book of Exodus, it doesn't look too joyous because they were afraid of God when he came down. But you know the result of this? They knew that God was their God, and they knew that God cared for them, and they knew that God wanted them to be holy because God had something for them. God wanted Israel to be holy as he is holy. So on one hand, the law is a bad thing. That's when it's used for the wrong purposes. But Paul also explained to us how the law is good. It's the pedagogos that, that, uh, that brought us to, to, the, to the... It is the servant of God that brought us to Christ. It delivers us to the only righteousness that can actually save us. And that's the righteousness that comes by faith. But we don't want to be under the pedagogos forever because it's harsh and demanding. Instead, we want freedom. And the only freedom that we can have is that which is obtained by faith. So that's what we looked at secondly, the freedom of faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And that's where we get the term pedagogos, the schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And the word for children there is actually sons. So what Paul says that we are all sons by faith. And that's important for us to understand that the word is actually sons because that fits the foregoing imagery that Paul's already given. In the Roman household, a pedagogos was the one given the responsibility of bringing the male child to maturity. In Hebrew and Jewish or Roman culture, rather, the son was the heir to the father's fortune. And so this is what God says that you are. You are sons of God. You are joint heirs with Christ. We have rights as sons of God because we are in Christ. And so there's that that terminology, you are the sons of God. And for you ladies... If you don't like the male gender references that we have in Scripture, I'm sorry about that. But the, the Bible uses it because Christ is a son. Christ is the son of God. And positionally, whether you're male or female, you have been made a son in Jesus Christ. And that means that you have all the rights and privileges to heaven. And I'm not a woman, but that doesn't seem like too much to complain about. Now notice the next verse, and and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening. Verse number 27. For as many of you as have been baptized, as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. 
Now, we just got to start with this last week as we notice the unique language that Paul uses. He says that we have been baptized into Christ and we have put on Christ. So what does he mean by that? Well, we have to stick with the imagery. A child is in those times, and Paul is talking about here, the child being under the care of the pedagogos, and he wore that special robe that I showed you we had on the screen a week or so ago. He wore a special robe, and that was a, a, a red-rimmed or red-bordered, crimson-bordered garment that he wore, and that indicated his position as a child, that he's not ready for all the rights and privileges to, of the heir, to be the heir of his father. But then when the child was released from the care of the pedagogos, Gagos, the robe was changed and he put a different robe on and that robe indicated that he was free that he was out from under the custodial care of that schoolmaster or the pedagogos and now he was eligible for the privileges of a son and that's the same type of language that Paul uses in this verse and he means that to put on Christ is the same as putting him on as a garment In other places of Scripture, the Bible uses that same imagery when it talks about putting on Christ and it compares it like a soldier putting on his uniform. The uniform is what identifies him as being in the armed forces of the country. And that's important because we're talking here now about identification. A soldier doesn't become a soldier because he puts on a uniform. And a child doesn't become a grown and mature heir to his father's fortune just because he changes his robe. But that uniform and that robe are the symbols of what he is. They don't make him what he is. And that's important to us because of the errors. I mean, understanding that and realizing what Paul's talking about is very important to us because of the errors that have crept into this text. What Paul cannot be saying here is that baptism is the way that we become the children of God. Now, he's already said that we're the children of God by faith, and he's no more going to say that baptism saves us than he would say that circumcision saves us. Both of those are human works, and the whole argument that we have here in the book of Galatians is that we're justified by faith alone and not by the works of the law. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go into one of those little doctrinal matters for just a little bit, and we're going to take a side journey here to deal with the doctrine of baptism. And I'm not going to go into everything about baptism, but what applies to the text we're going to talk about for a few minutes. And this verse, Galatians 3.27, is one that is twisted by Satan's prophets to make it say something that it doesn't say. So there are two errors that I want to address with this text tonight, two errors that people have about it. And the first one is the error of spirit baptism. What does Paul mean when he says baptism? Well, when I say baptism, what do you think of? I think probably most of you, your, your eyes or your attention would go over there to your right to, that, to the big cross that's there and underneath the cross there's a tank and that tank is called a baptistry and you get this image in your mind of me standing over there in the water and somebody standing in the water with me and then I take that person underneath the water and I bring them back out of the water and that's what you think of when you think of baptism. And when you look into the scriptures and you think about baptism, you think about John the Baptist and John the Baptist being out there in the wilderness and then people coming to him and John going to the Jordan and the waters of Enon and people coming around there and and meeting John the Baptist and John the Baptist baptizing those people. 
And we think about Jesus and, and John baptizing him and, and John bringing Jesus up out of the water and the Spirit of God descends like a dove and the voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when you think about baptism, your mind goes to Acts chapter 8 and you think of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch on, in the chariot on the way to Gaza. And there Philip is standing in the chariot or with him in the chariot and explaining to him what Isaiah 53 means. And he preaches to him the gospel out of Isaiah chapter 53. And they ride along and evidently at some point Philip explained baptism to him because the eunuch says, See, here is much water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And Philip said, Well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe. And the Bible says that He and the eunuch, Philip and the eunuch, both went down into the water and Philip baptized him. So when I talk about baptism, do you think of anything else other than water baptism? No? I hope you would say no. Then why is it when we come to this text, the the more modern way of interpreting this is that, and almost universally today, this is the way it's interpreted, that this is a spirit baptism that it's talking about in Galatians 3.27. But you look at the old commentators on this. You look, at, you look at Barnes, and you look at Gill, you look at Henry, you look at Trapp, and they all interpret the text as water baptism. Then likewise, in Romans 6, verse number 3, Paul said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And they'll look at that scripture and they'll say, Well, that's also a spirit baptism. Same ones that say Galatians 3.27 is a spirit baptism say the same thing about the text in Romans. And they say that even though Romans, as we'll see in just a few minutes, so clearly explains and gives us the picture or an act of what what takes place in the act of water baptism. And yet they claim that this is a spiritual baptism and this is the way that we get into Christ. And I would maintain that the scriptures never describe such a baptism, at least not in the sense that our union with Christ takes place in that kind of a baptism. But rather, what Scripture is describing here is is water baptism. And just like Paul has given us the picture, we put on Christ as a garment. Paul says in Galatians 3.27 that we put on Christ. And that's what water baptism is. That's our identification with Christ. But do you know that most people are not properly instructed on baptism? Whenever someone comes and they desire membership in the church and they've not been baptized, I always question about this. I always ask them, what is your understanding of baptism? When children come and they say, well, I want to be baptized, I say, what's your understanding of that? Why do you want to be baptized? And quite frankly, even most adults don't answer the question properly. Most people that come to us don't really answer it properly. So they'll have to think about it and they'll be a little bit puzzled by it. They know, I mean, they're saved. They know it didn't have anything to do with their salvation. But what was it actually for? Why, why did they actually do it? And that's the thing that a lot of people are puzzled about. They just don't know. Well, we find the answer to that in scriptures like these. And here's what we notice about it. First, that baptism is the way that we identify with Christ. Just like a soldier puts on a uniform, when a person is baptized, he puts on Christ or he identifies with Christ. And you may say, well, how? In what way do I identify with Christ? 
Well, let's go to Romans chapter 6, if you would, and we'll look at this and we'll find out. How do we identify with Christ? And while you're looking for Romans 6, I'll just uh, let you know that those who believe in infant baptism make the passage refer to spiritual baptism. They're happy to do that, and that's because they've got the symbolism of baptism wrong. And we'll show that how that's true in just a minute. But Romans chapter 6 and verse number 3, Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin." For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord." Now there we see, and we'll break it down here just a little bit, that baptism is a picture. First, it's a picture of our burial with Christ. Baptism is actually like a moving picture. It shows what happened to Christ. When we're put under the water, that's a picture of Jesus being buried in the tomb. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. And then baptism is a picture of our resurrection with Christ. When we're brought up out of the water, that's a picture of Christ coming back to life and arising from the grave. He says that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now, do you have any trouble associating this? Do you see, you have any problem with the reality of what Christ did through that picture? That seems clear to me. I mean, first of all, it's a picture of, of death, burial, and resurrection, which according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 4, he says that is the gospel. That's how we're saved. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the essence of the gospel itself. And then there's another picture that we see in baptism. This is in uh, verses 5 and 6. For if we have been planted together... In the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So the next picture that we have in baptism is the death to our old way of life. Baptism is a picture of our death to our old way of life. Our old life is crucified with Christ. It's dead and buried. And if it's dead, it can't live. Isn't that obvious? If it's dead, it can't live. And in other places, Paul asks the question, well, why do you want to live out of that which is stinking and rotten and dead? Why would you ever want to go back to your old way of life? Why would you ever want to live without holiness? And he says that's the same as feasting on an old, dead, rotten corpse. Why would you ever want to do that? Your old way of life is supposed to be dead. And then in baptism, we also have a picture of our walk in the new way of life. 
So when we come up out of the water, there's a picture there that sin has been destroyed, that we rise to walk in the new life of Christ. He says, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So we die to our old way of life. We rise to walk in the new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes that. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so those are the pictures that we see in water baptism. When we go into the water and we come up out of the water, we picture what Christ did. So baptism is a picture of the gospel. And when we're baptized, we say we believe what Christ did. We identify with the work that Christ did. And I might also add to that that this is our public identification with Christ. I mean, raising your hand, walking down the aisle, shaking the preacher's hand, standing in front of the people, that's not your public identification with Christ. No, it's when you go down into the water, when you're brought up out of the water. That's public identification with him. And that's the reason that we do it in front of the whole church. That's why we bring the kids in from the other side of the building. Because people need to witness what you say that you believe about Jesus Christ. And that's what baptism is all about. That identification that we have with him. Now I'm sad to say this, but... We're at odds with some of our missionaries on this. We have one missionary in particular that sends us back reports every now and then of thousands of people that are saved, but only maybe 10% or less actually get baptized. But the Bible teaches us that baptism is the commitment that we've made to Jesus Christ. And I happen to be one that believes if you can't get them baptized and they won't be baptized, don't count them as converts. Doesn't save them, but don't count them as converts if they're not willing to follow the very first command that God says his people should follow, and that's to be baptized. So you think then, well, why is it that people who believe in infant baptism take Romans 6 and Galatians 3 and they say that is a spiritual baptism? They're not the only ones, but they do. Well, they have the purpose confused. That leads to the confusion about the mode, the way that they do it. They believe that it's not the picture of the burial, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but it's a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person. And so they don't have any, any, any reason, they think, to immerse anybody in the water. Just sprinkle a little bit of water and pour a little bit of water on them because that the mode is the Holy Spirit, or it's picturing the Holy Spirit coming upon a person. But you can't picture for sure uh, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't picture a burial by throwing a handful of dirt on somebody. You have to take them under the water. You can't, you can't picture the burial of Christ by just sprinkling somebody. So we do it this way because we show what we believe that Christ did. And so if you're going to change the meaning, then you change the picture. And so it seems to me that Romans 6 is just so explicit about what's taking place and what baptism is all about that it blows every other theory out of the water, no pun intended. So the first error of Galatians 3.27 is that Paul is referring to spirit baptism instead of water baptism. And if he is, then we've lost that visualization of this great preaching ordinance that we have of water baptism. Now the second error is the error of baptismal regeneration. 
the era of baptismal regeneration. And this is an era that's more serious than the first because this is the denial of the entire principle of justification by faith alone. Now, what you do not want to do, you don't want to mess with Paul on the doctrine of justification. Anybody here want to tackle Paul after we've been all through this on what justification is? You don't want to tackle him on this. But baptismal regeneration says that baptism is a sacrament that has to be performed in order to salvation. That it's not a picture, but it's the real thing. That this is how we get into Christ. So baptismal says it's a, regeneration is it's a sacrament. The Roman Catholic Church believes that. And they baptize babies because they figure the earlier that you baptize them, the better. They're unconcerned about faith. Faith doesn't enter this. Baptism is the thing that's operative, not your faith. And, of course, baptism is just one of the rituals that they observe. There are a whole lot of things that they add to it besides, but there's where it starts. It has to start with your baptism. That's the primary thing. It's on the bottom rung that you have to step on before you can be saved. That's the starting place. And then you have the churches of Christ that believe this. And their difference is that they do immerse. They don't baptize babies. But they do believe that baptism is what puts you into Christ. And they actually believe that the way that you contact the blood of Christ is by going down into the water. So you can have faith in Christ. You can believe in him with all your heart. You can believe that he died to save you. You can put all your trust completely in him. But if you're not baptized, then your faith is worthless. And some of them say that baptism is a part of faith, that faith is incomplete without baptism. And that's the very same argument that the Judaizers are trying to make. Your your salvation is not complete, and your faith is no good unless you join it with circumcision, and when you do that, then it's going to be complete. Now, they don't really have an interest in doing away with faith. They're still teaching faith, but they're saying that faith is no good unless it has the circumcision with it. And the people that believe in baptismal regeneration will say the same thing. They will say, okay, well, we'll give you that. You've got to have faith, but you've got to have the baptism as well. So the Campbellites, the churches of Christ, they're never going to baptize people that haven't believed. They say you need faith, but faith alone is not good enough. But probably one of the most convoluted things that I've ever come across is how Martin Luther became confused about this. I mean, I've read Luther on justification by faith alone. I've read him on baptism. And I can't for the life of me figure out what in the world Martin Luther was thinking when he taught this, that he believed that that you needed to be baptized in order to, to be saved. Now, he expounded the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and then he combined that with baptism and says that's also required for salvation. Now, like the Indians say, and I'm not trying to stereotype anybody or be politically incorrect, Charlotte, Paul, the Indians say he speaks with a forked tongue. That's what they would say about Martin Luther. And I've talked to Lutherans today, and I find the same type of confusion. It makes no sense to say that you believe you're justified by faith, and then also say that you believe that you have to be baptized. Those are incompatible doctrines. They're damaging doctrines. And I'll go even further than that. They're damning doctrines. It's the very same same thing that the Apostle Paul is arguing against in the book of Galatians. And really, that's one of the reasons that Protestantism is divided. Now, although Martin Luther 
was responsible for getting the Reformation up and going and getting, you know, getting on track. Yet today, Lutheranism is actually considered to be aberrant Protestantism. And that's because of baptismal regeneration, that belief. You're never going to get Presbyterians and, Pres- and, and Lutherans together on the sacraments. They're never going to agree on that. One looks at the other, or the, the main body of Protestantism looks at Lutheranism as aberrant Protestantism. Now, thank the Lord we're not Protestants, so we're not really too worried about what's going on over there except to give them the truth. But th- th- that's, that's the confusion that we have on this, and it's important doctrine for us to understand. I want to close this evening with a, with a quote from John Stott. Now, John Stott was actually an Anglican, and he died a little bit less than two years ago. But he wrote a really good commentary on Galatians, and uh, I regularly use it and read it and see what he has to say. But there's a whole passel of things that we wouldn't agree with John Stott about. There's some things that he said that are very, very wrong. He believed in annihilationism. We're never going to agree with that. But he was right about this passage. I mean, he was right about what he said. And uh, what you do here is that when you read things like this, you have to take the good and throw out the bad. And I'll warn you about that. Be careful who you read after. Because if you don't know how to take the good and throw out the bad, you don't want to involve yourself in this too much. I mean, you stick with, with, with uh, somebody you have complete confidence on everything rather than, than, uh, to, than to do this. But there are good things that he said. There, there are things that Baptists write, and they're very good on some things and very bad on other things. But listen what Stott says about verse 27, and this is a good comment. He said, it is through faith that we are in Christ and through being in Christ that we are sons of God. Our baptism sets forth visibly this union with Christ. Verse 27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This cannot possibly mean that the act of baptism itself unites a person to Christ, that the mere administration of water makes him a child of God. We must give Paul credit for consistent theology. The whole epistle is devoted to the theme that we are justified through faith, not circumcision. It's inconceivable that Paul should now substitute baptism for circumcision and teach that we are in Christ by baptism. The apostle clearly makes faith the means of our union with Christ. He mentions faith five times in this paragraph, but baptism only once. Faith secures the union. Baptism signifies it outwardly and visibly. Thus in Christ, by faith inwardly, verse 26, and baptism outwardly, verse 27, we are all the sons of God. And I think that we could all say amen to that comment. And the next thing I would say is that John Stott must have got it from the Baptist. So be careful. Be careful when you're reading reading certain things that people write. Be careful about how they interpret Scripture. I mean, there are people that have their pet doctrines and they can read just about anything they want to in just about any text. They can make people believe all kinds of things. And so they come to verse number 27 and they see baptism there where Paul says that we are, we are baptized into Christ, we put on Christ, and they make that salvation. And it's dead wrong. So we have to give Paul credit, like Stott says, that We have to keep theology consistent, and Paul does. He doesn't cross himself up by putting a Christian doctrine in place of a Jewish one and make that the way of salvation. Now, people in the Old Testament, they were circumcised not to be saved. 
And Paul says, the circumcision is not the one that's done outwardly, it's the one that's done inwardly. That's the one that joins you with Christ or joins you to God. And so they were circumcised as an outward confession that showed that they were the people of God, but they didn't do it to get saved by it. And when they thought that they were, that's when they were confused and away from God. And baptism is the same way. You don't do it to be saved by it. You do it to identify with Jesus Christ. Paul says we are all the children of God by faith. But let me say this, and I think it's very important. Baptism is mentioned throughout the New Testament. Jesus taught about baptism. Uh, John baptized. John the Baptist baptized people. Jesus gave a great commission that said, go and decide, baptize people, win them to the Lord, disciple them, baptize them, disciple them, do all of these things. Baptism is an extremely important part of our relationship with the Lord. And so we do want to make sure that our baptism is right. We want to make sure that we've been baptized for the right reasons and baptized by the right authority and all of those things. That's very important for us. But it doesn't save us. It just shows that we have believed that Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins. He arose from the grave, and that's why we are justified, because of what Christ did. Don't confuse the outward sign with the inward reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the doctrines that you teach us. We thank you for the Apostle Paul who, who taught these doctrines so strongly and uh, would not give up teaching the truth. And I just pray that you'd help us to do the same. Don't let us pass on doctrine. Don't let us think that these things are not worth talking about, that nobody's interested in them. We need to be interested in this. Somebody has to carry the faith forward. And Lord, we help, pray that you would help us to be a church that does that. Thank you for everyone who's come tonight to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.